welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. We've been, over the last seven or eight weeks in our series in the book of Isaiah, I mentioned at the very beginning of the series, and I know I'm stretching your memory back quite a number of months now, but I mentioned how the book of Isaiah really neatly divides into two. The first 39 chapters, and then from, verse 40, uh, from chapter 40 through 66. And there is really not much controversy among scholars about that division. It's, it's a very clear division. But the reality is, within that larger division, there are also some smaller uh, subsets, as it were, or some um, smaller divisions that commentators recognize. And one is chapters 1 through chapter 12. This is generally regarded by people who study the book of Isaiah as a recognisable unit. Its, uh, its chief theme is the judgment and hope for Jerusalem and for Judea. Now from chapters 13 on, for a dozen or so chapters, Isaiah changes focus and starts to talk about the nations. And he starts to talk about their hopes and the judgment that is coming from, from, for them. But for the first 12 chapters, he's really talking to the community of faith, as it were. And up to this point in our study, we've been within that unit. We've been talking about the judgment and hope that is coming for the community of faith as it's embodied in the city of Jerusalem. And what I want to do this morning is bring to a close the, that unit by considering chapters 11 and 12. We've worked our way through, not exhaustively, but we've worked our way through to chapter 11 and 12. Up until this point, Isaiah has painted an incredibly bleak picture of the state of this community of faith as represented by Jerusalem and Judea. It seems that there is a huge, virtually unbridgeable gap between what they are actually and what they were called to be ideally. So the gap between the actual and the ideal is an immense one. And the question that has to be asked is how on earth can this actual people ever become the ideal people, the people of promise? Now, Isaiah has clearly indicated that the community has reached the point of no return and that judgment is inevitable. King Ahaz's unfaith and the people's corruption has put this nation, this community, on a collision course with the judgment of God. And last week, we looked at chapters 9 and 10, and they spoke about three things, God's indignation, what it was that made God angry, God's instrument working out that anger, which was to be the nation of Assyria, and God's intention in that anger, his ultimate purpose. So we had God's indignation, God's instrument, God's intention. Now, as dark as the situation had become, we did note that God's intention was not ultimate utter annihilation of this community. The the well-deserved judgment that they were about to face was not to be total extinction. They would be subject to God's ultimate purposes and ultimate promise to his covenantal partner, Abraham. 
See, God had promised Abraham a people, a people that would be blessed and would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. He has not forgotten that promise. So even in the judgment, that judgment is subject to God's ultimate intention and his promise to his covenant partner. So for example, in Isaiah chapter eight and verse eight, God says that his instrument, Assyria would sweep through the land like a flood, but that flood would be up to the neck. And that wasn't just a hypothetical, you know, kind of phrase. It's, it's, an, it's a statement that although God's judgment will be intense, it is also limited and under his ultimate purpose. It would be up to the neck, but not over the head. I've mentioned a number of times through this study of Isaiah that the prophet often juxtaposes these two themes of judgment and hope. And even in the darkest times when he's speaking judgment, he will inject at times a note of hope. And then later in the second part of the book from chapters 40 through, where he's talking more about comfort, we'll see that even in the midst of that comfort, he will inject notes of darkness, of judgment. So he juxtaposes these two themes. Now, throughout the first 12 chapters, as we've seen, the theme is overwhelming, impending judgment. However, even in the midst of that intense darkness, Isaiah manages to plant seeds of hope in the midst of the prophesied destruction and chaos. He speaks about a remnant that will survive and will put their trust in Yahweh. Now, this idea of a remnant a small remaining group, is a recurring motif through the book of Isaiah. It's mentioned directly 16 times. It was mentioned four times in that chapter on God's indignation and his wrath. And it's mentioned again in chapter 11 that, um, that we're about to look at. One of God's children, uh, sorry, one of Isaiah's children was called uh, Shia Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. And his very existence was to serve as a reminder that God would be faithful to his covenantal promises. Now, the hopes that Isaiah had for this remnant, as I say, have been planted as seeds through these very dark 12 chapters. In the portion that we're about to read, chapters 11 and 12, we see those seeds coming into full bloom. Let me just quickly take you back and show you some of the seeds. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. We're in the midst of the actual situation. He has a vision of the ideal situation, and he sees the nation streaming up to this incredibly attractive city, Jerusalem. The house of the Lord at the top of the mountains and all the people streaming to it. Didn't look anything like that in the present, but that was a note of promise for this people. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, it says, In that day the branch of the Lord will be glorious and will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. Those who are left, the remnant in Zion who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy, all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the woman of, of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. By the way, just take notice of that first phrase, in, in that day, the branch of the Lord, because that's going to come up in, in our study this morning. But here, another picture of promise and, and, an, and a hint as to how that promise will be realized by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. 
Then in Isaiah, that's the chapter we considered where Isaiah is called by the Lord uh, and he's given a, a very hard message to bring to these people. In the midst of the complete desolation and coming judgment, there was also planted a note of hope. Verse 13 says, a hewn down stump with a seed, a holy seed in it. So you've got this picture of deforestation just with nothing, but one of these trees has a seed in it. Chapter 7 and verse 14 is a somewhat obscure sign, especially for the people who were hearing Isaiah, not so much for us because we look back through the filter of the New Testament, but he, he prophesies about a virgin who will conceive. And uh, we didn't take a lot of time to look at that, but in that, even though it seemed a somewhat obscure, there was a seed of hope. And then again in Isaiah chapter 9, where it says, this, a child will come, a son will be given, and uh, his name will be called. Again, these little pictures of hope in the midst of the overwhelming darkness. All of these pictures hinted at a messianic hope. One who would come and who would be the instrument in the hands of God that will enable this corrupt, compromised community finally to become the people that God intended from the very beginning. Now, some of these signs, as I say, particularly the Isaiah 7 one and the Isaiah 9 one, were somewhat obscure to the first recipients of Isaiah's prophecy. We see them more clearly looking back through the filter of the New Testament. Chapters 11 and 12 that we're going to consider briefly this morning develop these messianic hints that are, and seeds that have been planted, and they give us a much clearer view of what God is intending to do. The little threads of hope in the earlier chapters, in these chapters, 11 and 12, are pulled together into a more comprehensive whole. So I want to look at these two chapters. We, as I say, we, we won't do it exhaustively, but I want to look at it using three headings. So in verse, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, we have a great ruler. In verses 10 through 16, we have a great return. And in chapter 12, 1 to 6, we have a great rejoicing. So a great ruler, a great return, a great rejoicing. We're going to spend most of our time on the first. So if it seems and you're looking at your clock and thinking, holy cows, it's quarter past um, and he's still on number one, don't panic because number two and three we're going to deal with very, very quickly, okay? So let's have a look at this great ruler that is promised. Again, within this section, I want to break it up into three. Verse one is his ancestry. Verse two through five is his rule. Verses six through nine is his world. So let's look at verse one, his ancestry. And there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Before we can explore that, let me just give you a little bit of background as to the images that Isaiah is using in this chapter. Isaiah and the other prophets, Ezekiel in chapter 31, Daniel in chapter 4, and Zechariah in chapter 11, have all used the images of trees to describe either people or kingdoms. Isaiah in his previous chapters has used frequently this idea of people being like trees. He's talked about cedars and oaks and sycamores and vines and myrtles and briars and thorns. He's very, very clever at likening people and nations to trees, symbolically sharing their characteristics. So in chapter 2, verse 13, he talks about the proud as being lofty cedars and oaks. In chapter 5, he talks about Israel being reduced from a beautiful vineyard to briars and thorns. In chapters 9 Verse 10, he speaks about Israel being 
cut down like sycamores. In verse 18 of that same chapter, he uses deforestation as a picture of what's taking place among the people. In chapter 10 that we considered last week, he talked about Assyria being a forest that ultimately would be hewn down. Even though they were God's instruments to discipline Judah, they transgressed the limits of what God had established for them, got too big for their imperial britches, as it were, and God said, I'll cut you down as well. And of course, we know that happened one night when the angel of the Lord come among this army that had surrounded Jerusalem, and in one night, 185,000 soldiers from the Assyrian army lay dead. I find it fascinating that the words that 2 Chronicles uses to describe that, 2 Chronicles 32 says, and he cut down every mighty man of valor, leader, and captain. So this image of people like trees, and when judgment comes being cut down, is the background for the first verse of Isaiah chapter 11. It starts using that imagery and says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So we've got this picture of Israel and Judah, like a forest that's been absolutely leveled and chopped down, but out of one of the stumps comes a shoot, and then ultimately a branch. That particular stump is described as the stump of Jesse. Now, most of you will probably know that Jesse was King David's father. So what we are talking about here is out of the lineage of David will come a shoot ultimately a branch. We talk about a person's family tree. This is David's family tree. This tree, this family tree looks as if it's been leveled and cut off, and yet in it, Isaiah 6 talked, a seed has been planted, and here we see it blossoming and coming out. The word, by the way, for branch in the Hebrew is the same word from which we get the English word Nazareth or Nazarene. And again, looking back, as we can do, through the filter of the New Testament, we immediately see Jesus in this image. In fact, Matthew says in chapter 2, verse 23, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, he shall be called a Nazarene. You know, the puzzling thing about that prophecy is that you can search the whole of the Old Testament and you will not find any place where it says that someone coming will be called a Nazarene or the the Nazarene. The RSV version actually cross-references Matthew's prophecy with, David, with um, Isaiah's note in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, that the branch, the thing that will grow up out of the stump, and, and the word means Nazarene, that Matthew's picking up on that idea. He's picking up on that theme. The idea of the branch actually develops from Isaiah throughout the rest of the Old Testament and becomes a reference for this Messiah who will come. I I mentioned in the passage in Isaiah where it says in Isaiah chapter 4, on that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. This is a reference to this figure who would rise up out of David's family tree. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, it says, Behold, the days shall come, says the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper. And then in chapter 33 and verse 15 of Jeremiah, it says, In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up. Again, he links it with David, for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the earth. 
Zechariah talks about it in chapter 3, verse 8. I am bringing my servant the branch. And again in chapter 6, verse 12, here is a man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place and shall build the temple of the Lord. So this idea of a branch then is very clearly prophetic of a Messiah who would come, the Messiah we know to be Jesus. I find it fascinating that in verse 1 it says this shoot will come up out of the stump of Jesse. So out of this family tree of David, this shoot will come ultimately to become this branch that the rest of the prophets pick up on. But in verse 10, it says, and he shall be or there shall be a root of Jesse. In the first instance, he springs out of Jesse. In the second reference, Jesse springs out of him. Is he the root out of which Jesse springs or is Jesse the root out of which Messiah springs? Which one is it? And the answer is yes. This ruler mysteriously is the root and origin of the very messianic family into which ultimately he will be born. Now that would be incoherent nonsense except for the fact that we are dealing with the incarnation of the pre-existing Christ. He existed before he was born as Jesus of Nazareth. He is the origin of the messianic promise and family and ultimately its fulfillment as well. When you come over into the New Testament, it's interesting, but in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus describes himself as, I am the root and the offspring of David. I am both the root of this messianic tree and I am the offspring of this messianic tree. So verse 1 then, we have his ancestry. He comes out of the family tree of David. Verses two through five describe his rule, his endowments to rule and its absolute justice. And it goes like this. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He shall delight in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge by what his eyes see nor reprove by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and reprove with fairness for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. The rule of this great ruler will be characterized by the presence of the Lord upon him. The fourfold repetition of the spirit in verse two is striking. And we see it again in Isaiah 61 where it says, and the spirit of the Lord shall be upon me. There's a sevenfold picture or reference to the spirit of the Lord being upon this great ruler. And the sevenfold nature of this prediction would remind its hearers of the candlestick in what was the tabernacle and then the temple, the great golden candlestick with its central shaft and then the three branches extending out from it. And the central shaft is the spirit of the Lord upon him. Then the three pairs of endowments are like the three branches that come off from it. The first being the spirit of wisdom and understanding. The second being the spirit of counsel and might. And the third being the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Some commentators have suggested that the first pair are his personal qualifications. What he is in himself, wise and understanding. 
The second pair are his perfections in relationship to his people. He gives them counsel and provides for their might. And the third pair have to do with his relationship to God, both the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Now, verses three through five, if we go back to that um, portion, talk about the nature of his rule. He'll delight in the fear of the Lord. He won't judge by what he sees. He won't reprove by what he hears outwardly, but he'll work for the poor. He'll work, work for the meek on the basis of fairness. He'll strike, the rod with the, earth, uh, he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he'll slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. You know, in contrast to the rulers and the wicked leadership that we've seen leading up to this point, here is a ruler whose rule will be characterized by absolute righteousness and justice. Here is a ruler who will not be swayed by outward appearances and pressure. Here is a ruler in whose hands the concerns of the weakest and the most vulnerable are safe. Those with no economic, political, or social capital will, from this one, receive a fair hearing. This one will be a servant in his rulership, not because he's too weak to dominate, but because he's strong enough not to need to crush. The wicked are no threat to his rule. In verse 4, it says he slays the wicked with the breath of his lips. That immediately reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, when he says Jesus in his second coming will consume the lawless one with the breath of his mouth. You see, you see the links between this messianic promise and the fulfillment of it in Jesus. Verse 5 describes him as having a girdle or a belt that's righteousness and faithfulness. You know, the girdle in that day secured the rest of the garments. Without the girdle, the garments sort of flopped everywhere and movement was very difficult, especially fast movement. So the girdle wrapped around the body, giving the, uh, the person consistency and, and firmness. And again, I'm reminded of Jesus who in John 13 girded himself about with a towel. I, I wonder that in the girding of himself, with a towel, he wasn't plugging into this ruler who would rule in righteousness, and yet in the midst of that rulership would also be a wonderful servant. Verses 6 through 9 talk about his world. So we've seen his ancestry. We have seen, what was number two? Help me. His rule. Thank you. You are listening, three of you. Fantastic. And number three is his world. And it reads like this fantastic passage that most of you will have heard before. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. The young ones shall lie down together. Uh, the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the viper's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. These verses present us with a scene of almost mythological proportions. There are echoes of Eden here, perhaps what the world may have been like even before the fall. But with the coming of this ruler, with his rule, we have a picture of a transformed creation. Natural predators are now coexisting peacefully. Wolf and lamb, leopard and kid, calf and lion, cow and bear, lion and ox, child and serpent. How are we to read this? 
How are we to understand a passage like this? Well, there are two basic approaches to it. The first is that it's to be read symbolically. And the Bible does use pictures of wild, untamed animals to represent nations and their destructive capacities. You remember the book of Daniel and some of the visions that he had in chapters 8 and 9. He sees lions and leopards and bears and terrible beasts, and they are the nations in their rapaciousness and their destructiveness. Isaiah has previously used that kind of imagery. In chapter 5, he talks about Assyria being a roaring lion. So there's possibly some merit in this approach. The overall picture would be that's conveyed is that in Messiah's reign, the fears associated with you know, the insecurity, the danger, the evil that these wicked nations can produce will be done away with, and death itself will be conquered. Verse 6 says, and a little child shall lead them. If we do take that symbolic approach, then really that points to the fact that under Messiah's rule, it will be no place for strutting, proud, arrogant monarchs. It'll be, uh, it'll be characterized not by the suspicion and cynicism and violence of the rulers of this age, but it'll give way to the innocent, to the simple, to the childlike. Some commentators who take a symbolic approach to this passage would see it not necessarily as the jostling of nations, but the competing urges and forces within each one of us as individuals, that we have both lion-like capacities and lamb-like capacities. And the Messiah here brings order to those. He brings wholeness and consistency, kind of a bit like Romans 7-ish leading into Roman 8-ish, if you're familiar with those passages. So you could take a symbolic approach to this, or the second way is to take it a little more literally. It's always a challenge when you're dealing with poetry, and, and you know, we'll see this as we study the book of Revelation in a couple of week, um, weeks' time, you know, as how, what's literal, what's not. But if you take it as a, a little more literally, um, this is the Messiah bringing shalom, not just to individuals, not just saving individuals to take them to heaven, but this is Messiah bringing salvation and shalom to the whole of the cosmos. This is creation renewed. The curse of Genesis 3 is removed. At the fall, we're aware the, the nature of everything was dramatically affected by mankind's rebellion. Everything was thrown out of joint. And the distortion of mankind's relationship with God is at the root of all of the other distortions that you find in creation. And with that healed, there will be corresponding reconciliation of all ancient hostilities. And it'll produce a change even within the nature of beasts themselves. People who take this kind of approach would see this passage in Isaiah in the light of Romans chapter 8, where Paul talks about all of creation, waiting patiently and hopefully for that future day when God will resurrect his children. For on that day, thorns and thistles, sin, death and decay, the things that overcame the world against its will at God's command will all disappear and the world around us will all share in the glorious freedom from sin which God's children enjoy. Now, Isaiah goes on in chapter 65 and 66 to talk about this new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. And we know at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22, again, John picks up this theme of a cosmos redeemed, restored, renewed, a new heavens and a new earth. Not totally different, not new as in not related, but there's a continuous process of God changing, renewing. Yes, different in many, many ways, but, but the same. In the same way that you and I are redeemed. Different in many, many ways and yet the same. 
Of interest to me as I was thinking about this is a couple of little odd verses in the New Testament. And, and I wonder if it doesn't give us a picture of the way Messiah seems to interact with the created order. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 12, it talks about Jesus going out into the wilderness during his time of 40 days of prayer and fasting. And it says in verse 12 that he was with the wild beasts. Now, the wilderness of Israel at that time abounded with wild boars and jackals and wolves and leopards, hyenas, lions, and other animals, of course, that would normally be incredibly dangerous for somebody who was in that region. But in this passage, the Greek preposition with, he was with the wild animals, is used to indicate close contact. G. Campbell Morgan, the scholar, says it indicates the closest association and unity. He was with the wild beasts, but they were not wild with him. As if somehow in the presence of Messiah, there is a dramatic change in their nature. We see it also in Mark chapter 11 and verse 12. I suspect many of us read this and just read completely over the top of it. But this is about the time of the triumphal entry and he sends his disciples off to get an animal that he'll ride on. And it says he rode on a colt on which no one had sat. As I say, most of us just read completely over the top of that unless you've tried to break a horse. Unless you've tried to break a wild animal so that it will receive willingly a rider. If you've seen it or watched it done, animals that are not used to people riding on them don't, don't normally allow it to happen without a good deal of violence. And yet he was able to get on the back of a colt upon whom nobody had ever ridden and, and submissively, willingly, it carries him. Perhaps in those two odd passages, we have small picture of what Messiah will do in terms of transforming even the nature of the beasts. So, question, is Isaiah 11 symbolic or literal? Your call. Maybe the answer is yes. Maybe. Maybe it's both nations and, and internal urges, and yet also the transformation of the whole of the cosmos under the hands of this great ruler. So we see then this great ruler, his ancestry, his rule, his world. Then we are introduced to a great return. And that happens from verses 10 through 16. I'm reading the message translation. It goes, on that day, Jesse's root will be raised high posted as a rallying banner for the peoples. The nations will all come to him. His headquarters will be glorious. Also on that day, the master for the second time will reach out to bring back what's left of his scattered people. He'll bring them back from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Ethiopia, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the ocean islands. And he'll raise a rallying banner high, visible to all nations, gather in all the scattered exiles of Israel, pull in all the dispersed refugees of Judah from the four winds and the seven seas. In the end, there will be a highway all the way from Assyria, easy traveling for what's left of God's people. That's the remnant Okay, for what's left. A highway just like the one Israel had when he marched up out of Egypt. A lot in the passage, just note, twice in that passage, it talks about a banner being raised. 
That idea of a banner being raised actually was found in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 26, where it says, he lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come, speedily and swiftly. On that occasion, that banner was lifted up to attract the nations to come in judgment. He whistles to them, you know, and brings them from the far corners of the earth, his instrument to deal to his incredibly disobedient people. But here the picture is quite different. In this passage, he's not raising a banner, calling the nations for, just, for judgment. In this instance, he's raising a banner, calling for the restoration and return of a scattered people. And verse 10 actually tells us that the banner is a person. On that day, one called Jesse's roots from David's family tree will be lifted up as a banner and all people will be drawn to him. I don't think you can read that without thinking of John chapter 12, where Jesus said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. The great return. This Messiah will produce a great return as God's people come streaming back from their captivity to be united around this one banner that will be lifted high. Now, the end result of this great ruler's rule and the great return will finally be a great rejoicing. And I don't even want to comment on this. I'm just simply going to read it for you, okay? It's Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. So we've read through Isaiah 11, and we've seen the great ruler and the great return. Isaiah chapter 12, 1 to 6 is the great rejoicing. Let me just read it to you. In that day you will say, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away, and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw waters out of the wells of salvation. And that day you will say, give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all of the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. A great rejoicing that flows from the rule and ministry of this great ruler. As you read through that passage, some of you will have noticed there are echoes of the Exodus all through the passage. And it even says, I'll restore my people a second time. Now, the first time was clearly the Exodus. These, these people know they're in exile. They, they are physically, they're about to be removed. And they go into exile. That exile basically lasts not just even when the people are returned to the land in the portion of Nehemiah you know, and, and Ezra. Um, they're aware that even though they're back in the land, they are st still under the, the domination of other rulers. And they know that though they have been physically returned, their exile has not finished. And that exile goes right through to the coming of Messiah. Some of you perhaps might remember the Advent series we did that we called an Exodus-shaped Christmas. Leading right up to the coming of Jesus, the Jewish people understood that though they were back in the land, they were still in exile. And around the events surrounding Jesus' birth, it's saturated, soaked in Exodus imagery because this is the one. 
This is the one who has come and will be the second Moses, the one who will lead his people out of exile, who will lead his people not out of just Egyptian bondage, but out of bondage to a Pharaoh beyond the Pharaoh in the realm of the heavenlies. He will break the power of wickedness and evil. He will start to bring the restoration that Isaiah prophesies about. And you and I live in a time where this has begun but hasn't reached its culmination. We are seeing the rule of this Messiah extended and expanded, happening in your life, happening in my life. We who are the first fruits of new creation. The ultimate new heavens and new earth is being worked out in you and me. When Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. You've heard me say this before, I know, but he, he literally in the Greek doesn't say he is a new creation. He says, if any man is in Christ, new creation. It's begun. It's begun in you. It's begun in me, and ultimately it will issue in a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah is prophesying thousands of years ago. The scope and clarity of this man's prophecies are stunning beyond measure. There's nothing like them in the, pretty much in the whole of the canon. He saw with incredible clarity from his own day, from his own compromised community of faith, he nevertheless saw a faithful covenant-keeping God who would send in the midst of this forest that had been cut down a, a shoot that ultimately would become a branch that would be a picture of the Messiah who would restore all things. This is the instrument of God to take the people from what they actually are to what ideally they are meant to be. He's the one. Now, if we just stopped right there, we wouldn't know how he was going to do that. We might imagine, as the people of this day did, that when Messiah would come, he would come in swinging a sword, and he would sort things out. As we move further into Isaiah, suddenly we start to unpack these incredibly mysterious servant songs, filled with suffering, filled with a lamb who is before his shearers as one who is dumb. A, a lamb who takes upon himself the judgment that this community so rightly deserves. And Isaiah starts to unpack not just the person who will do it, but the manner in which he will do it. And I wonder again if we don't see in Jesus, you know, girding himself with a towel, the servant ruler, the servant king, who comes to make his people, take his people from what they presently are to what God intends them to be. He still does that, by the way. He still does that. He takes you and I in our actual place and says, walk with me. Let me take you from what you are in the darkness, in the brokenness. Let me restore you. Let me make you all you're intended to be. And that's the journey that we all take. So, Donald, if you'd come with your team and we're going to spend some time worshipping, um, just... We've, we've covered that first section, that first third, 12 chapters. Uh, I know some of you are thinking, my goodness, you know, 66 chapters in Isaiah. Um, I could be, you know, I, I might not be here when he finishes. He might not be here when he finishes. Um, we're going to skip over large portions from here on in, okay? So, so I, I think, God willing, we will get it done. for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.